welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're tuning into an episode of the Redefining Society Podcast, hosted by Marco Cipelli. Let's face it, the future is now. We live in a hybrid analog digital society, and we must stop ignoring it or pretending that technology is not affecting us. The line between the physical and virtual worlds has become a figment of our imagination. On it, we are continually performing a dangerous balancing act juggling convenience, privacy, freedom, security, technology, society, culture, and even the future of humanity. There is no better place than here, and no better time than now, to muse on our relationship with technology and how to redefine what society means in this new age. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. And here we go. Hello, everybody. This is Marco Ciappelli. Welcome to another episode of Redefining Society podcast, where, as you know, we talk a lot about uh, AI, about technology, about climate change, about everything really that affects us. And as a society, you can interpret that as everything we do, everything, all the way we interact with each other. And most of the time, we don't think about it. You know, we just go along, we we get our culture, our communities, the way we think, our country. But luckily, there are people that stop and think about what are we actually doing? Why are we doing certain things? Uh, I don't know, what is the meaning of life or something like that? And usually those are philosophers. And as I joke often lately, philosophy, ethics, and the way that we live in our society, sociology, never been as relevant as today on the mass media in the in the public conversation because of AI, because of technology, because of privacy. So we always end up there, but from different angles and with different guests. Today, for the people watching the video, they already see uh, Daniel Sanderson is here all the way from Canada. And for the people listening, yeah, it's true, he's here. So uh, Daniel, um, let's hear your voice and uh, hmm. introduce yourself. Who is Daniel? Marco, thank you for having me. Um, <laughs> it's my pleasure to be here. I, um, I, I, I'm a philosopher, really, at the end of the day, which, uh, you know, it may start to uh, repeat itself for people that really understand philosophy, that you love wisdom. And, uh, well, I love wisdom. And, you know, where do we draw that from? I think it's um, from thousands of years of written text, uh, from people who have thought, a whole lot more than I have or you have, right? There's this, this tradition of lineage that passes down from person to person. And I'm, 
I'm someone that just participates in it and loves that participatory um, experience, I guess, right? That's, that's the simple thing. So as the philosopher, I lead with that. Uh, I also am the, the founder and the owner of a media outlet called PlankSip, uh, which um, PlankSip stands for plank, like a piece of wood, an organic platform, and sip, like a hot cup of coffee or a tea. That's supposed to uh, get people to think about consumption. And I, I'd like to change what consumption means. So if, if there are any creators out there that, that, that um, try and create podcasts, right? Like we're doing now, uh, write articles, uh, create content. This, this creative process has the potential um, and a shaping function. Now I'm leaning into a little bit of a, of a platonic sort of thing, right? Shaping, forming, forms, this kind of thing. It's um, really is an ideal process and part of our psychology. So I like to tap into that and, and, and emphasize the discussing nature of what we can do and what we can discover together. And that's exactly what we're doing here today. And what I do with the people that are involved in my network, my friends, my family, and and you as well, Marco. Well, I, I love it. I feel like I've seen a little bit of myself in in what you in what you said. And we were talking a little bit before starting, you know, turning on the the, the uh, on air or recording sign. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we have a, a common passion, and uh, I, I love what you what you do. I want to learn definitely more about. Uh, the publication that you have and i suggested maybe we will do that on my other podcast where we can really dig into that and you know content creators and which is a very popular uh terminology used everywhere now from a TikTok to you know and you can argue there's different kind of content for sure but <laughs> today yeah. on this show i, I want to dig into more into your your vision as a as a philosopher and someone interested in the future of humanity, which is, you know, questionable in a way, where where we find ourselves today, and we look back at history, we're now dealing with things that probably a hundred years ago we didn't even think about, like AI. Yeah, everybody's talking about that, so you know we need to drink. I guess it's a drinking game. Every time we say AI, we we have a sip, uh, which connect with what uh, your publication is. So. It's a complicated conversation. And like I said, it, it's back into the public conversation. Really a mirror, I think, and looking at the way that you know, generative AI, for example, collect all these informations, um, study in a way who we are, almost thinking about the fifth elements when you, you know, <laughs> the, the fifth element incorporate all the knowledge of humanity in few in few minutes. And and then who you are is just you're you're just somebody that is human. Um, you're not somebody from another world. You just incorporated all that knowledge. And I think you get the bad and you think the good. So as a philosopher, this technology, um, the bad and the good of it. I mean, are you more a pessimist, a dystopian, or a utopian when you look at this? That's an excellent question. And I think I, I, I exist my opinions and, and what I'm actually gonna explain exists in relation to our society. Uh, 
in ancient Greek society, it had a little bit of a different culture. The culture was orientated towards perfection. So you could say if, if they had the technology at their fingertips, okay, the Promethean, which represents technology in and of itself, right? Promethean technology. Um, I guess I should explain Promethean was a, um, a, a god that was punished by Zeus for giving humanity technology, giving humanity the ability to, um, I guess, transcend out of the ordinary, right? Now, if the Greeks had a technology like we're experiencing, an AI technology and some of those fears, I think they'd be more optimistic to use your framing, okay? The reason why I think they'd be more optimistic is that on the forefront, the psychology that I'm witnessing is very fearful. So in response to this fear, I wrote a book. A lot of people write books. I think um, I'm going to evoke the uh, <laughs> Darwin for a minute. So Darwin, when he um, when he wrote his bombshell of a book, he was he was immersed in the the culture of uh, religion at the time. His wife was 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 horrified to know that the the that the the paradigm that he was going to unleash in the world. He he'd prefer of just to have left it and until after he had passed away. Wallace, who discovered um, discovered you know air quotes uh, evolution at the same time, kind of was the catalyst to kind of move that forward. Right. Okay. So. Um, and, and, and I want people to pause for a minute and goes, is this guy actually comparing himself to Darwin, right? And I say only on one simple point. And that, that point is, is that I've written over 33 books and not published a single one. I, and, and you're going to think, well, why am I waiting to publish these? I'm, I'm probably going to publish a few. And one of the ones that I'm most proud of is a book called Will Freeman. And it's exactly that. It's a, it's a, um, it's, it's, it's about an Android. It's about artificial intelligence. Now, I want to I want to frame this for you, okay? Because the the entire book is framed around the fact that humanity's existence is going to end. Just point blank. That's what you have to accept when you start reading the book. Humanity's existence is going to end. Okay. Now, outside of the book, that could happen at any. You know, it's for any reason, it could be an asteroid, it could be a virus, it could be, you know, whatever, okay? But there's a universal acceptance that the, the um, extinction of the human species is inevitable within 30 years, okay? Now, if we kind of parallel that to the conversations that are happening right now, um, there are a few fears that might make that somewhat relevant, climate change, nuclear fears, uh, war, resource scarcity, this kind of thing. But the idea is that it's like the jury is still out. If I make those claims, somebody else is going to say, no, no, that's not true. You're over-exaggerating, right? So this, the fundamental starting point of this particular book is an acceptance that that's happening. You say, well, why would we do that? I said, well, it's a fiction. We're basically saying that in this world, it's accepted that we're we're done. Okay. Now, assuming that we're done, what does that mean for artificial intelligence now? 
And notice how the, psychologi the, the psychology instantly switches, and that's what I wanted to leverage. When the psychology switches and says, uh-oh, we're done, what is the potential of artificial intelligence? Uni uh, and, and I'm talking general artificial intelligence, an artificial intelligence that would be, um, uh, that captures the essence of a human. So a sentient one. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then the, then the conversation goes to say, well, if we wanted to embody all of humanity into a sentient being, how do we do that? What would we put into this? What, what would be included and what would be excluded, right? So that's the subtle play. And now you have a project, a humanitarian project, where the drive, the single force drive is to actually impregnate that technology with everything that it means to be human, okay? Whether or not it's possible or not, this is the point. It's like a thought experiment. The interesting psychological thing that happens when you do that is that something reveals itself. Our fears become on the forefront. They dissolve away because the answer is we no longer have those fears. We're literally going to die. There's no more humanity. So our entire hope for the continuation of the human species is this transcendent, ubermanch sort of like next generation. Uh, I, I, it's biological, right? It's 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 not transistors and and uh, on off switch or or binary switches. It's it's actually a biological entity, right? Okay, so that was the premise of it. It was an enjoyable ride to be able to write something like that because it really illuminated for me how much fear is in and around the conversations of artificial intelligence. Wow. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, that, there is some thinking going on there for sure. I, I already kind of saw portion of the movies in my head as you were telling this, this, you know, and, and of course, my, one of my first uh, thoughts is many times to say, well, okay, what kind of end of humanity? I mean, is end of humanity as like a virus probably? Would, uh, would a meteor destroy this AI too? If destroy the planet? Or if it's just the end of humanity, so are there form of, I'm doing air quote, form of life, even if it's artificial, still exists? So I'm assuming that's, that's the scenario you're talking about. And we are excluding the possibility to go out of our planet and save the species, I guess. That's not in the book. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing, isn't <laughs> that? So psychologically, let's let's talk about what's happening. There here, is no right? option. Like, that's what you're saying. You're like, you're, yeah. you're facing the end. Period. Exactly. And and I found that as writing, when I was writing this, I mean, I was very explicit in, in, in the beginning of the book to set the stage, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I felt the urge to try and figure out what exactly those details were. Right. And, and, and I, I settled over a process of a year and a half trying to leave it as, um, as vague because the tendency of exactly what you're doing is, is that, but wait a minute, is it an asteroid? Is it this? Is it that? Mm -hmm. And the shift focuses or the, the focus shifts from the plausibility, the realistic, um, 
like like how accurate is that potential from actually happening and it ruins the book it ruins the idea of mm-hmm. let's just assume that there is an end to this and this is this is kind of like um platonic training 101 right what is the ideal for a um for an artificial intelligence that is supposed to represent humanity what is that mm-hmm. yeah if you take humanity and you take what is it, what are what are the 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 single and it could be multiple things in fact you know they really are but what what is the essence of what it means to be human right and so that's what the meditation is not so much on the plausibility of the you know of the argument right there's there's plenty of doomsday scenarios right so it's like okay doomsday is happening let's not talk about how it's going to happen right because i mean think about this one movie uh don't look up okay i mean you don't understand like the you know the the narrative at play it's instantly divisive divisive right because the the climate people on one side are saying yeah this is a metaphor for this and then the 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 uh I don't know, the same more conservative libertarians are like, this is ridiculous. We're just going back to work and business as usual thing. And we understand what, you know, you guys are doing and it's overblown and it's ridiculous. Right. And I thought, I can't go down that road. I can't. It's not. It, I want to know if we had the power uh, technology wise to put the essence of humanity into a robot to be, you know, to be, <laughs> to, to be give it a, a human form or a... what would, what would we put into it? How would we capture that experience of what it means to be human? So we sort of have other conversations and think about, well, yeah. there's a lineage to it. There's knowledge, there's experience, there's love. There's, there's so much that captures what it means to be human that now all of a sudden the plausibility of how the world collapses Okay, is irrelevant to this fiction. It just doesn't matter. It does not Mm -hmm. matter. Okay, and I would say that considering, um, you know, going back to Darwin, um, there's no guarantee that the species of one on this planet is destined to live forever. Okay, right? There's there's no guarantee on it, and you almost think about one of uh, my favorite academics, which would be E.O. Wilson, he, um, he's known as the ant guy. <laughs> he, he is a Harvard ant specialist. And um, basically his, um, his approach is one of consilience. So he looks at the way the world is and thinks that we, uh, you know, we need to dramatically come together to be able to fix the planet from a biodiversity standpoint. We need to be more um, half earth orientated and and work more in lockstep, I guess just work to to promote the biodiversity of the planet. One of the things that that E.O. Wilson was, um, I guess, known for a little tidbit fact that I didn't know is that the biomass of humanity or of humans on the planet equals that of ants. And if you think about it for a minute, you're like, wow, that's interesting. There's like, I don't know how many ant species there are, but there's hundreds of thousands of ant species. Of, you know, I think, I think that's what it is. There's, there's a lot more than one. We're one. <laughs> we talk about survival of species. Well, there's so many species on the planet in terms of ants, and they have the same biomass that we do. You take all of the mass of ants and you look at all the mass of humans, we're right on par, right? Mm-hmm. So 
you know, and I think if there, if there are events that really challenge our survivability, we talk about um, uh, the production of food, for example, we can look at mass famines and maybe something triggering, uh, I don't want to get into a doomsday conversation, but this is, you know, we could go through a period of that. We could go through a very um, challenging time where the, the decadence and the prosperity that we, especially in the, in, in the Northern hemispheres and in the, you know, the quote Western world, we're experiencing um, unprecedented times of, of, of wealth and prosperity. And there's nothing guaranteeing that that will continue. Nothing saying that it can't actually get better, right? This is kind of how, you know, you have to approach it. But when you look at it and you think we're one species and in terms of evolution, and adaptability, you know, we got a one chance. We have one chance with one species. <laughs> Ants, for example, have like many more possibilities to be able to adapt into their surroundings. And there, there's more species, just simply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard not to go in Domsday scenario when we when we talk about this, unless unless we we take this exercise and this scenario. And we say, well, okay, we, we just saw the end and the future or what it could be. And what do we do with that now, right? So what, what do we learn? Like I, I have conversation with people that run complex uh, risk assessments for the planet. Where do we focus the most? It's the, you know, the world going to end. Um, and it's not a, a fantasy thing, although it's the really thin between fantasy and reality, we don't know what it is anymore. But with that idea, what do we learn? Because the thing they often say is, you know, I'm not afraid of technology. I'm afraid of how human are going to use technology. I feel like technology is an extension of who we are. We created it, and it's what I'll pass to. I mean, it's almost like part of being human. It's an extension, in my opinion, of being human. So it will actually make sense that ultimately we hand our humanity to a piece of technology that we have created and you kind of keep living in into another form i mean i don't mm. know if that's what you're going but that's what i'm seeing and so i want to bring it back to to reality of the contemporary world where again can we do this analysis and an imaginary scenario that are very plausible anyway and say can we change something today are we doing the right thing are we building the technology that serves us or are we building the technology that it just make us money in the short run and there is not really i mean I, for me now that that's the big question like instead of waiting for this end of the world where you created it the vision for it, what do we learn from that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that I have a lot of sympathies for what you're explaining, actually. I really do, because um, with we've all seen that, the, you know, the hockey stick graphs and the explosion of technology. Um, like I mentioned, we, we live in an unprecedented time of prosperity for, for, for a lot of um, I guess in the Western world and in the Northern um, continents, I guess. Right. And when you, when you look at it, I think, I think you're going down the right path to say, um, 
can we slow it down? Right? I mean, we're going so fast, right? And that that's one thing that when you when you have a car that's going really fast and you want to like kind of limit it, you put a governor on it. And so governance is a very it a very interesting conversation to have. How do we how do we government how do we govern and slow down um, the the rapid explosion? Of, and I think the key here is a little introspective because what you're doing by slowing down technology, okay, and the adoption of technology is you run the risk of stifling innovation. So there's a couple of things that are kind of working against each other. You know, we're forced with challenges and I think maybe we could just evoke uh, entropy at this, at this standpoint, things will get more complex over time and things are getting more challenging. So, if if we if we if we enter into a um, a state of agreed governance that restricts and slows down our rapid um, adoption of technology, does this in itself threaten the existence of the human species? Like we could have kept going with the pedal to the floor, so to speak, right? Okay, I mean. I don't know why I'm thinking about Elon Musk, but he's another one who who um, has got his foot on the gas pedal. He's a platonic thinker uh, as well, and you know he's 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 going full force, right? You know, it's are we going to get into a position where we say, "Hey, stop doing that, Elon"? That's a really interesting thing, right? Like, where does that power come from? And I want you to think about the internet, for example, um, and the nature of what it means to be human. Elie Wiesel was a um, uh, a Nazi concentration camp survivor, and he's really famous for pointing out that within the heart of every human individual lies darkness as well as light. Okay. So what that the reason why I bring that up in relation to the internet is that prior to the internet, by the way, if you look at the Google Doodle, the the Google Doodle, it's got a two five in there, and I'm guessing right that it's the birthday, and uh, that's really interesting because I remember a world prior to Google, right? Yeah, so me you, too. and you're right. right. It, it was twenty five a few days ago. Yeah. Exactly. So what the you know the reason why I, I I I bring that up is that prior to the internet changing our lives, prior to that we had no idea, and we were filled with ideologies and hopes and aspirations of what the internet could be. I mean, if you went in a time machine and went back and had conversations with people about the possibilities of the internet. This was supposed to be like a, a panacea, uh, a, a pill that we could take and it would, it would, it would be um, equal information sharing for all of society and it would radically transform society, right? That was kind of the idea, right? And um, could you have harnessed that in a way that made it 
ideal for everybody? Well, ultimately, if you look at the way we are as part evil, part good, more good than evil on the aggregate, you're going to say, hmm, you got to take the good with the bad. You got to face the bad with courage. And so I want to bring it all back to, to four virtues. And this is the introspective approach rather than trying to stay in front of the freight train and push it and move it. You think to yourself, can I practice uh, cardinal virtues, for example? Can I individually and introspectively look at um, things like prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance? Can I do that? Can I become a noble man? Can I, or woman, right? Or whatever. So anyways, you, a person, okay? You can all practice this as rational beings. We can practice this introspective, self-improving type of thing. We can also hold our leaders accountable with those same types of, of virtues. So when you can make a difference, when you can change, that's where judgment emerges from, okay? Um, and I, and I think that's, I think that's the key. Um, I think when we think too big, when we try and, like I said, get in front of the freight train and move it with our hands, it's coming at us. We're like, maybe let's have the conversation. Maybe we could just shift it over this way. Now you're going to get trampled. You're absolutely going to get trampled. So, um, we're just here for a blip blank. Hey, to give you one other kind of idea about, uh, the finite nature of human existence and at least on lifetimes um, and bringing it back to evolution. Imagine what the human species is going to be like in 5,000 years. I mean, even assuming that we can kind of weather that storm, right? 5,000 years. It's not going to be a lot of evolutionary change. I wouldn't imagine. Right. I mean, humans 30,000 years ago in the caves of Lascaux still have this human character to them, right? At least, when you strip the technology down and you've got the handprint in the caves of Lascaux and it's like, they're, they're human. They're, you know, they're cave dwellers, hunter gatherers, they're communities. They love their children and they, they support their tribes and their families. Right. Okay. So you say, well, 5,000 is not going to mean very much. 30,000 is not going to mean very much. Maybe even you could say a quarter million years and what humans are really not going to matter that much, but, or they're not going to change that much evolutionary wise okay but if you say 500,000 years 4 million years it's not like um transhumanism is some sort of a choice we have to adapt right and if that if that goes down that sort of way we're surviving that's what we're trying to do not like well hey we could go a b c or d what does it mean to be surviving that's a different question and we have a problem thinking in those time scales we almost mm. apply the bias of one lifetime to say oh in six million years i don't want to be living like this i don't want to be you know you know living on uh, you know virtually in virtual worlds well actually your biology will be different in that time period you have no idea my grandparents had no idea what the world was going to, how it was going to cha change and shape over one lifetime. 
what makes us so preoccupied with the future to have the assumption to think that we could actually predict what's even going to happen in two and three lifetimes to say, well, let's just push this freight train over that way. Be like, what? What? Well, so two points. One, it makes me think this uh, this creation, this uh, this creature, <laughs> thinking Frankenstein here that that we create. Mm-hmm. It it kind of reminded me the the golden record on the Voyager that we put there with you know Carl Sagan yeah. working on it and a piece of poetry, a piece of music. A piece of history of who we are hoping that it will reach somebody that actually do care and you know it's the essence of being human in the early 70s at that time when we did that right Mm -hmm. so so this creature that that we we create i start having a feeling about talking about transhumanism that we're going to be more and more integrated with with technology in our body and that could be for a health care reason, for wearable, or who knows for what, maybe for flying. And so I'm thinking that maybe that AI, general AI, that you're imagined to survive all of us and representing us, maybe we'll even have some genetic human part in it. So it's not a, just our consciousness, but also some of our biological life. So I'm just getting along with your with your vision here. Love your your perspective on that, thinking in a long run. Maybe not 30 years, but 500. Well, the thing, the thing was, Marco, is that it's not, um, there's nothing prophetic about it, which means I don't think that's the way history is going to unfold. Really, it was one perspective to show and illustrate our bias, right? Where we're so impregnated by fear. There's so much fear of the unknown, that it, it, it greatly influences our decisions and our creativity, right? And I think that is, that's just the point. That's it. That's, I don't want to have somebody say, oh, Daniel's advocating for transhumanism, or he thinks that this is the way it's going to be. No, 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 no. I am not being predictive in any shape mm. or fashion. I'm only trying to offer uh, an emotive, okay? Like a pause. Um, alternative to say, temper that fear. Temper it. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, and no. I think I... that this is the problem is that people get so wrapped up in, I think this is the way it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And then that's your position. And then you defend that position. And I'm like, Marco, I have nothing to defend other than the facts. <laughs> like, other than the fact that like, this is just, it's very light, yep. right? You're it, pausing, very... and, and it's a different angle to look to look at things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just maybe I shouldn't be like maybe I shouldn't be so fearful of the potential. And what happens if I shift the mindset and I think, oh, what happens if I'm positively looking at, at that? Right. I mean, your show is um, really interesting on redefining society, and it, in the early days of Planksip in 2016. My uh, my Twitter profile—it's like thought stories and something or other related to big data. Now it's a little bit of a pejorative, where big data is like, what is big data? And you know, you know the uh, the arts 
and, and certain divisions of the university will actually look at things like big data and think that they're coming up with some sort of a proof where they're not, it's just a large number set. And what does the number set tell us? And there again, and there's a fear factor on, on large data sets in that something Orwellian is going to be able to um, control us. And they're right, there's that aspect. What is the liberating aspect of large data sets? Hey, it's just information, it's just knowledge. So when I say liberate, this is the thing that um, I, I would like people who think about big data and um, I'd like to have them think about ways that it could free people, um, enhance people's lives, okay? I remember there was, um, there are some analytics about who you should marry. Now they're not telling you who you ought to marry. They're saying that on average, you marry the, the, the third person that you have a relationship with, okay? Now, why that's important is because not that you have to head into the first and second relationship as uh, somebody who's oblivious to that information. You have that knowledge. What does that mean? There's a shaping function there. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to abandon your virtues, but what it's saying is that we all approach relationships in a particular way. And what the reality is, is that there's, there's kind of a sweet spot for finding your life partner, right? As revealed through analytics. Mm. Now, I'd like to know about that. I think that's valuable information. It doesn't mean that I need to say, for example, I was a, um, a leader of a church with very specific dogma about, um, you know, I say like out of, uh, out of, uh, marriage, uh, like premarital sex. Okay. For example, and find the person you're going to be with and all that sort of thing. There's nothing saying that you, you can't really articulate that. And you can't embody those values and manifest them in relationships and encourage your, uh, your, your, and your faith. There's nothing saying, but that's information that's really valuable. And big data is just information. What we do about it, I'd love to see more of a, a liberating aspect of it. This, for example, like Google's earlier uh, mantra, which by the way, Planksip was really interesting, I, I think. I had to get special permission from, from Google to use the Planksip colors or to use the Google colors on the Planksip logo. There's a P and it's got the, the four colors of Google. And um, I had to get special permission. They gave me permission. I just can't outwardly say that they are endorsing anything that I do, but basically, I'm very much for a uh, an, an information rich society. I'm very much so. The key is is thinkers like you and I, and as many other people that want to participate. How do you make it a a a vehicle for for freeing uh, for freedom? How do you how do you provide how do you um, how do you impregnate the wisdom in, in, in big data and the collection and the activity 
These are the conversations that I want to have. Yeah. Fear is, I don't really know how to react to that other than to run away. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, to me, fear, if it's fearful, this is one of the first litmus tests that I have to go, well, if I'm scared, I, I evoke the, the the god of the saber-toothed tiger, tiger, and I'm going to run the other way. Mm-hmm. There's nothing threatening about having the conversation about this. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's going into a loop from when we started. So, and and because we're running now short on time, although I, I officially would ask you to come back again, and so we can keep going mm-hmm. with this conversation. It's the fact that you started with defining yourself as a philosopher, philosophy, which means love of wisdom, right? You know, the, the knowledge, which is that. And, and now we're in a loop where I think everything we created in technology is part of who we are. I'm a big fan of that. I'm not afraid of AI. I, again, it's a way to look in a mirror of ourselves. And now you bring in now the, the big data, which is as well, it's what is... Yeah, it's knowledge, it's information that we can have way faster, in a way more um, articulated and organized through AI, for example, that could allow us, if we use it wisely, to make the right decision. So, but also, as it is good for the good thing, can be amplifying the bad thing as well which is, again, yin and yang, good and bad, and, and all of those fun conversations. So, again, I'm not afraid of technology. I'm afraid of what we can do with it, and and I and I think it's just part of who we are. If, if we yeah. see all the things that we see now in, you know, chat GPT coming out with biases, uh, well, that's because we we taught that, too. That's a reflection. Through like all said, the harvesting. Yeah. of who we are. So yeah. All the harvesting of information is done. It's like it's not a just. It's not like creating their own opinion. It's just learning Reflection. to yeah. And it's not really intelligent either. It's just putting together what learned from years and years of our knowledge that we put on papers or in in binary form. So, well, look, it, this is a lot to think about. I, like my my brain is going. Um, a lot of connection. I hope the audience also is thinking quite a bit because that's my mantra which is if we finish a podcast and people are thinking and have less less answers and more questions than when they started i think we're doing a pretty good job and and yeah. you've been amazing in really bringing it to to the next uh, to the next level i guess you know being a philosopher that's what you you, you do and uh, i was suggested to publish that book man seriously i i want to see it published i want to read it <laughs> yeah, I, it's uh, yeah, that's it's that's relevant a, now very much. Yeah, it's it's only uh, most of what I've written is nonfiction, and it's a fiction. It was very challenging to do, um, but uh, there's been a lot of philosophers that will write fiction. Uh, yep. I just happen to be one of them, and uh, to go along with some of the nonfiction stuff that I've got to. So, yeah, I got I got to get them out. All right. Cool. Well, I seem to be so busy helping other people write their books and get their stuff out and put them first. But it's the story of my life. I, you know, believe it or not, and I think people know it by now. I've been thinking about writing books for since I was born, pretty much. And I always write for other things. I do write. I 
I give people advice. I help people tell other story, and I just need to find the, the the moment that I actually put out my own, which in a way I do through this podcast. Like you know, if people follow, they see that angle of what I try to say. But I love I love uh, I love a good fiction. It makes you think. Um, you know. Well, I think we uh, you know back in the day in Plato's day we used to write things on uh, on tablets or papyra, uh, this type of thing, and we're content creators have the ability to make this their art in conjunction with you know the written element of a book right yeah. so um i offer that to you if you'd like some help writing your book or any of the people that are are listening um you know check out planksip because yeah. we offer free publishing right it's uh it's what we do and everything that swells around that publishing is um is your voice is your contribution Yep. And uh, yeah, that's that's my mission right now to help. Love it, I love it. Yeah. All right, we'll, we'll definitely share that for everybody listening. If you want to get in touch with Daniel, we'll have notes on the podcast and uh, on in the YouTube description. Way to connect with uh, with Daniel and uh, with what he does. And uh, anything you want to share with our audience following this conversation would be would be great. And I I hope you'll come back. I want to get this conversation going. I had a really good time. Thanks, Marco. Cool. Thank you, everybody. Stay tuned for the next one. Take care. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Society, hosted by Marco Cipelli. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.